Welcome and thank you for listening to UU Spokane, produced by the Unitarian Universalist Church of Spokane, Washington, featuring the words of Reverend Dr. Todd Eckloff and guest speakers. Sun my sail and moon my rudder as I ply the starry sea, leaning over the edge in wonder, casting questions into the deep, drifting here with my ship's companions, all we kindred pilgrim souls, making our way by the lights of the heavens in our beautiful blue boat home. So you might be asking yourself, what business does a minister untrained in the field have discussing economics? Because in ministry, as with much in life, as the saying goes, it's the economy, stupid. <laughs> Whether it's in politics, as was the case when that saying emerged during President George H.W. Bush's unsuccessful run for a second term, or in the average individual's attempt to make a living in this world, economics is central to our lives. It's no less so for those involved in ministry, whether those advocating for the status quo because the economy as it stands benefits their specific religion, church, or ministry, or those prophetically challenging the current economy because it leaves too many people down and out. Economics is and always has been a primary concern for those involved in religion. The word economy itself is comprised of two Greek words that are common in the Christian scriptures. Oikos, meaning a home, or more specifically, an inhabited house. And namas, meaning custom or law. Together, oikonomos is translated literally as manager of household affairs, or quite simply, to mean steward. As a verb... Oikonomia refers to the stewardship, oversight, and management of household affairs. But the etymology of the prefix here, oikos, cannot simply be translated objectively to mean a house or a home because it connotes the idea of dwelling in or inhabiting a place. A home is not a building. A home is those who occupy it, which is why in the past families actually referred to themselves as houses, the house of David, for example. Hence, another version of this word, oikios, is translated to mean kindred, or belonging to a household. So economics wasn't originally about financial institutions, or systems and structures, but about those living within those institutions, systems and structures. In his book, The Sane Society, Eric Fromm laments the loss of this most important of all attitudes, which he says had determined the life of humanity for centuries, the principle that society and the economy exist for humankind and not humankind for them. Today, since we have a global economy, 
since we are all part of the same house and live under the same sky, the same roof, we need an economy that includes and works well for everyone. Adam Smith, the father of capitalism himself, said, No society can surely be flourishing and happy, of which by far the greater part of the numbers are poor and miserable. Yet if we continue the error of considering economics purely as a financial matter and conflate morality with utility on top of that, that is with the idea that the most good for the most people is good enough, then we can only conclude that the global economy is on the right course. For according to the latest United Nations reports, extreme poverty rates have been cut in half since 1990, and there are now less than 840 million people living in extreme poverty, currently defined as less than $1.90, living on $1.90 a day, representing just over 11% of the global population. By themselves, these numbers look pretty good, especially if they continue moving in the right direction, but the numbers can only produce part of the picture. It remains difficult to grasp exactly what living on less than $2 a day means when the cost of living varies so greatly from one country to the next. Likewise, even at only 11.5% of the entire population, 840 million people living in extreme poverty is far more than any of us should stand for. Those percentages climb when we consider only specific groups of people, including migrants and women and children, those with disabilities, non-whites and other marginalized ethnic, indigenous, and religious groups. And it becomes a majority of poor people living in extreme poverty if we count those living in just sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia. So I'm sure if you're part of one of those statistics, whether or not things are looking good from a big perspective, probably doesn't matter. Today we also hear alarming statistics about uh, you know, eight individuals having more wealth than half the people on earth. Or the bottom half of U.S. families having a net worth of only $11,000. But these numbers alone don't really tell us anything about the quality of life. Just because a few people are suffering from economic obesity, meaning they've had plenty, says nothing that is necessarily true about the quality of life for those who have much less. Just because some people are terribly overweight doesn't mean everyone else must be starving to death. Nor does everyone having the same amount of wealth necessarily mean that everyone isn't. As philosopher Harry Frankfurt says in his book on equality, from the point of view of morality, it is not important that, every, it is not important that everyone should have the same. What is morally important is that each should have enough. But conflating economics with money, measured by numbers and statistics, we miss its larger purpose, the welfare of everyone and everything under its roof. Economics ought not be strictly about the flow of money or its distribution, 
but about the stewardship and care of all our resources, including natural resources, energy, productivity, and the goal of maximizing human well-being and happiness at its core. We need to shift concern for how well the economy is doing to whether or not the economy is doing well, by which I mean we need to consider its consequences, what it is accomplishing, and whether it is working to meet that goal for everyone under its roof, which nowadays means everyone under the sun. Frankfurt calls this the doctrine of sufficiency, by which he doesn't mean merely having enough just to get by on, but enough that having more wouldn't make one less unhappy. He says it is essential to understand that having enough money is far from being equivalent to having just enough to get by, or to having enough to make life marginally tolerable. This is so, he recognizes, because people are not generally content with living on the brink. And that content is an important word because he comes close to suggesting with it, just as economics isn't about equality but sufficiency, that it's not about achieving wealth but about achieving happiness. The United Nations reports on poverty aren't concerned as much about the amount of money that people have or don't have, but about the consequences, the real consequences of living in poverty. Poverty is more than the lack of income and resources to ensure a sustainable livelihood, it says. Its manifestations include hunger and malnutrition, limited access to education and other basic services, social discrimination and exclusion, as well as a lack of participation in decision-making. Economic growth must be inclusive to provide sustainable jobs and promote equality. Economics should promote equality. Economics in this sense isn't about everyone having a sound livelihood, earning a respectable income, but about having access to healthy food and to quality education and, equal, and an equal voice in how they are governed and being able to enjoy all the benefits of society without prejudice, discrimination, or oppression. But how many of us think about economics in this way? That economics is about human health. That economics is about freedom and democracy. That economics is about promoting and protecting pluralism and diversity. And how many of us think as a society without health care, democracy, and diversity has a failed economy, no matter how much money is flowing through it? This, it tur turns out, has been the major problem with communism, an economic philosophy that actually began as a labor movement, meant to create solidarity among struggling workers so together they could force businesses and industry to treat them fairly and ultimately make themselves the chief benefactors of their own efforts. Where communists have taken control, however, instead of making human welfare the priority, the leadership inevitably becomes authoritarian and more concerned about retaining power than with its people's freedoms. So long as such governments are convinced they only exist to manage and distribute resources, their economies fail. For no one 
can truly be content or whole without also being free. Free to speak, to think, to act for themselves, and free to have a say in how and by whom they are governed. But the new economy, the global economy that has rapidly evolved during the past few decades thanks to the technological revolution and mass communications, has led to a worldwide reliance on a market economy and on heavy trade, representing a global form of capitalism that most countries, including Russia and China, participate in. So the question of our day has little to do with communism, but with whether global capitalism exists for the well-being and happiness of all people. And if not, which seems to be the case, can it be fashioned to do so? For many, the very word incites rage and resistance. It seems clear that capitalism exists only for profit, requires neighbor to turn against neighbor in a dog-eat-dog world, the inevitable outcome of which must be that very few have everything at the expense of almost everyone and everything else. Nobel Peace Prize winning economist Muhammad Yunus begins his book, A World of Three Zeros, talking about the failures of capitalism, which have led to the concentration of wealth into the hands of a few, and all manner of social and political inequality. Does the invisible hand produce its benefits for everybody in the society, he asked? The answer seems obvious. Somehow the invisible hand must be heavily biased toward the richest. Otherwise, how could today's enormous wealth concentration continue to grow? But Eunice, himself a capitalist, does not believe the problem is with capitalism but with our negative view of our own humanity, of human nature. Although he admits indifference and to other human beings is deeply embedded in the current conceptual framework of economics that encourages greed, exploitation, and oppression, selfishness, go away little one, I've got a gnat who is going to, uh, it's thirsty. See if this helps. Yeah, so he says that, that real human beings not, not the image of the human that's made up by this fiction, this terrible narrative about ourselves in both religion and economics. Real human beings cherish our relationships with others and are caring and trusting and selfless. Eunice says they work not only to make money for themselves but also to benefit others, to enhance society, to protect the environment, and to help bring more joy and beauty and love in the world. Aren't, aren't these the people that you know? Aren't these the kind of people you know, not just here, but in your lives, in our lives? 
Eunice's positive view of humanity is the very foundation of this series on the measure of all things. A mindset that rejects the need to repress human nature as societies and civilization have strived to do for ages and instead seeks to let it fully unfold by establishing systems and institutions whose sole criterion is fostering human welfare and enabling every individual to unlock their full potential. But if this is so, if it's possible to be a capitalist and still promote a positive view of human nature that cares for others and cares for the environment, how do we explain what seems to be the mess that it has gotten us into? To answer this, let's turn to the inspiration for this series himself, Eric Fromm. Again, in his book, The Sane Society, Fromm discusses the changes that have occurred in capitalism since it became dominant in, Western economic, in the Western economic system in the 17th century. He begins by outlining its four common features that have lasted throughout the centuries. Firstly, to paraphrase, it requires that people be politically and legally free. Important component of capitalism, that people be politically and legally free. Secondly, that they willingly, willingly trade their labor in exchange for capital. Thirdly, that there must be a mechanism for regulating and setting prices on commodities or raw products, keeping them the same for everyone. And fourthly, the principle that each individual seeks to make a profit for oneself. Even so, Fromm points out early on when society was still influenced by some medieval culture or thinking, it was supposed to be unchristian and unethical for one merchant to try to lure customers from another by force or lower prices or other inducements. He even cites articles, trade articles, business articles written at that time that refer to those who undersell their commodities as shameful and covetous, an attitude that was present in writings from England and Germany and France as well throughout the 18th century. No economic progress was supposed to be healthy if it hurt any group within society, Fromm said. In the 19th century, however, this traditionalistic mindset took an exponential turn towards what he calls the ruthless exploitation of the worker. Pursuing profit at almost any cost was considered morally right, even at the expense of others, especially those one employed. There was hardly any sense of human solidarity between the owner of capital and his worker, Fromm says. It was at the same time that people began to see themselves as passive actors in the realm of economics, meaning that they had no choice but to adhere to the law of the jungle by competing for supremacy over others. In this scramble for success, he says, the social and moral rules of human solidarity broke down. The importance of life was in becoming first in a competitive race. It was also less necessary for owners to trade capital for labor in direct relationship with their workers. They could own shares in a business that they never set foot in and sell products that they had nothing to do with. 
Some even took pleasure in competing and defeating their opposition. Freud described this compulsion for profit and possession as the anal character. And Fromm called it the hoarding orientation. Hoarders, Fromm says, have surrounded themselves, as it were, by, protected, by a protective wall. And their main aim is to bring as much as possible into this fortified position and to let as little as possible out of it. But the gravest change to capitalism in the 19th century, one that has continued ever since, is a living human being ceases to be an end in oneself and becomes the means for the economic interest of another person or oneself, or of an impersonal giant, the economic machine. This is not to say that this attitude did not exist prior to this era, of course. We need only think of slavery to know this. But for the first time, everyone, worker and employer, had become like cogs in a machine, at least one step removed from the product of their own labor. Fromm sums up the danger of this in the words of Adlai Stevenson, who said, We are not in danger of becoming slaves anymore, but of becoming robots. For under such a system we lose our sense of creativity and our own purpose and productivity and succumb to an authoritarian society, allowing ourselves to be ruled by what he called the anonymous authority of conformity. We do not submit to anyone personally, he said. We do not go through conflicts with authority, but we also have no convictions of our own, almost no individuality, almost no sense of self. This milieu became solidified in the 20th century, marked by four drastic changes to capitalism. Firstly, traditional relationships between people increasingly disappeared, replaced, as he put it, by a pure form of capitalistic society. Secondly, the beginning of what we now call the technological revolution replaced manual labor with machine production. In 1850, machines provided only 6% of the energy for work. By 1960, it was 96%. This led to a reduction in small businesses and a rise in big businesses and assembly lines opening the door to monopolies and giant corporations. And at the beginning of the 1800s, 80% of workers were self-employed. A hundred years later, it was only 25%. By 1950, 1% of U.S. businesses employed 50% of its workers, while another 1.5 million employed only 6%. A third change was the increasing separation of management from ownership making it possible for one to have ownership of a business and a product in a community one has nothing to do with, no thought of, and no reason to care about. The final drastic change during this period was the principle of mass production and consumption that has come to define modern capitalism. It has resulted in the transformation of populations into consumers that exist not for themselves, no longer as a means to their own ends, but for the purpose of the economic machine. Everybody is coaxed into buying as much as one can, Fromm says, even before one has enough money to pay for one's purchases. Being indebted has increasingly become a way of life for most of us, and the system itself has made us more compliant 
and less individual because 20th and now 21st century capitalism needs people, in his words, who cooperate smoothly with large groups, who want to consume more and more, and whose tastes are standardized and can be easily influenced and anticipated. None of this is meant, believe it or not, to be a condemnation of capitalism. I consider myself a capitalist. And often jest, I believe in it so much, I think we should try it sometime. <laughs> For what we have today is not true capitalism at all. As we have seen, what exists in its stead is actually, has actually restrained its principles of individual freedom. The ability to pursue self-interest. Right? Look what's happened to unions in this country. To bargain for fair wages. And has nearly eradicated competition. The invisible hand has become a heavy hand. Without going into it further, this is so I believe because, again, we have conflated economics, which is supposed to regard all that is essential for human welfare and growth to just the flow of money and have thus made money the only thing that is important in our society. In truth, I consider myself a capitalist, a socialist, and a communist. I just want to get along. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> not, not because I agree with them, because I don't consider them ideologies we need to agree with. That's been the mistake. They are rather social forces that were discovered and explained by those who saw them, by those who recognized them were at work by Adam Smith and Charles Fourier and Karl Marx. They weren't choices. Wait, sorry, my phone is apparently not on vibrate. Apologize for that. Every society is influenced by all these forces to some degree. Their success does not depend upon the quality of the ideas themselves, but upon, again, the sole priority of society being human welfare and individual fulfillment. Right now, our entire system is defined by 20th century neo-capitalism, let's call it. Our economy is capitalist, our government is capitalist, our legislators are capitalist. I would prefer a capitalist economy that is regulated by a socialist legislature. one that looks out for the general welfare, and a truly democratic government that is ruled by the people, and that all people have an equal voice in it and are regarded without prejudice. So instead of capitalist, 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 we have democracy, socialism, capitalism. The capitalist economist I mentioned earlier, Muhammad Yunus, has outlined a plan to eliminate poverty, unemployment, and carbon pollution through the establishment of social businesses. A non-dividend company, he, just, he says, dedicated to solving human problems. Imagine if that's the kind of businesses that existed. Businesses existed to solve human problems. 
the kind of businesses that are now actually cropping up all over the world. Started by ordinary entrepreneurs who care more about others and the earth than the bottom line of money. That of social and human well-being. Capitalism is not incompatible with socialism. The idea that government should not be authoritarian or fascist. Nor is it incompatible with communism. The idea that resources should be distributed, distributed in a way that meets the needs for everyone. Good idea. For in the end, no economy can work that is unsustainable. And no economy can be sustainable or successful that doesn't work for the needs of everyone and everything under the human roof, under the human house, under the sky, under the same sun. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed the talk. Connect with our community on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at UU Spokane, or learn more at uuspokane.org. To the waves upholding me Hail the great winds urging me on Greet the infinite sea before me Sing the sky my sailor song I was born upon the fathoms Never harbor or port have I known wide universe is the ocean I travel and the earth is my blue boat home the wide universe is the ocean I travel and the earth is my blue